As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Not yet erased. Christianity is an overlooked minority. A talk by Dr. Nigel Zimmerman at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium. Thank you very much, David, and thank you so much, uh, everybody. This is my first time in Hobart and first time uh, with, uh, with you at this event, so it's, um, it's a real privilege to be here. And I'm really grateful uh, to be following Carl's uh, presentation because so much of it really actually prepares the ground for what uh, I want to share with us tonight. Um, but I'm also acutely aware that um, I'm the last thing that stands between you and a drink at the bar. <laughs> so I will take the time very, very seriously that we have. Uh, this evening, the Dawson Centre has invited us to take up John Lennon's imagination for a post-religious future in those remarkable lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Uh, John Lennon had some very interesting and uh, remarkable lyrics in his time, which added to the shape uh, that, uh, that he was contributing to in terms of the culture of the time. Um, as an aside, I should say that um, Augusto and myself, as the two Zimmermans here for this two-day colloquium, should be very fearful if John Lennon's vision comes to pass because in another song, he lists all the things he no longer believes in. He lists God, he lists religion, and then he says, I don't believe in Zimmerman. <laughs> now, for those who know, of course, he's referring to Bob Dylan, whose name was Robin Zimmerman. Um, but for me, that's always been, oh, did he just say that, really? So the question we've been asked is, what would a post-Christian world look like if John Lennon's atheistic hope were to become a reality. We've been asked this in the year of a significant 50th anniversary. And of course, I know that all of you will have thought immediately of the 1968 White Album by the Beatles. And as an aside, it's also the year in which John Lennon divorced his first wife and took up with Yoko Ono who played a controversial role in relation to the end of the Beatles. This also happens to be the 50th anniversary year of Humanae Vitae, and I can't help but wonder if John Lennon had read Humanae Vitae instead, not only would he have a different vision, um, but the Beatles would still be around as well. <laughs> Lennon imagined what many secularists have tried to put into practice, and I quote, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. And I end quote. I actually enjoy a lot of Lennon's work, particularly when it was written with Paul McCartney. But this is not a vision reflecting deep thought, and in many ways looks a little immature in hindsight. It pictures a world in which the nation state has lost its power, and religion is merely a sad footnote in history, and in which nothing, nothing, can cause one's blood to boil in anger and to organise with others for the downfall of another power. No threat to the vulnerable, 
No bully is to be resisted at pain of death. No defense of the sick or the elderly is worth dying or killing for. And there is no cause greater than one's life. No vision beyond the immediate and the worldly. To be sure, it pictures a world without murder, which sounds rather nice. But it's also a world without martyrs or strangers who put themselves at risk or in harm's way for someone they've never met. And no place for the noble soldier on the front line of some ungodly war defending their homeland or indeed the priest more willing to suffer death than to betray his Lord or the promise he has made to his people. As it has happened in that intervening 50 years, the secularization of many of our institutions has been accompanied by a recent rise of the nation-state, an intense popularism of strong nationalistic leaders in the West, and a global increase in religious observance. Uh, I live in Sydney. We have a joke in Sydney that within about eight minutes of any conversation, we're going to be talking about property prices. Trump has now replaced that. It feels as if within eight minutes of any conversation about politics or culture, we'll be talking about the President of the United States. Now, of course, with the global increase in religious commitment and expression, the West is an exception. And culturally, at least, it has entered into a kind of quasi-late modernity or post-modernity in which reason is taking a decidedly back seat to a conglomeration of irrational identity, political markers, and the alienation of traditional religious and social norms. Um, I've watched this with my own generation and my own peers, um, and I only just recently realised that um, I just made the cut to be technically considered a millennial by 46 days. I thought that I'd missed it, but it turns out I'm a millennial. Um, and I've noticed these trends amongst my own peers in a fairly intense way. We, and I mean my generation, try to avoid our history. We look past Plato and Aristotle as embarrassing contributors to a civilization viewed through the lens of colonialism, set to a narrow focus. In Australia, religion remains important, to be sure. According to the last census data collected in 2016, 45% of Australians identified as Christian. But amongst the other data collected, we see that of the whole Australian population, only 15% attend church regularly, which is defined as at least once per month. Only 7% of the population are actively involved. The no religion marker is at 32%. 14% identify as spiritual but not religious. I'm rather fond of saying I'm religious but not spiritual. <laughs> All other religions add up to 9% of the Australian population. Islam at 2.6, Buddhism at 2.4%. In that no religion category, which is of particular interest, I think, the top three reasons given are that they, one, prefer science and, I quote, evidence-based research. That was the, the term used. Number two, religion is a crutch for the weak. Number three, religion is outdated and traditional. 
What strikes me about these reasons is that, is that they don't see religion as a positive force with which they disagree. This is not like being a medieval power at war with a neighbouring king. There is a view that there is nothing at all compelling in religion. It is not a competing perspective that has a rationality to be respected, but fought against. Rather, they view it as fundamentally irrational and therefore irrelevant. Importantly, in 1911, 0.4% of Australia said they had no religion, whereas in 2016 it has grown to 30.1%. The decline in Christianity has brought with it not an increased civility and embrace of difference, but something more potent and possibly more violent, a situation in which Christianity and specifically the church as an agent of change and influence, is being gradually cast out of the public square in what might be called a policy of erasure. I don't say that lightly, and I should clarify, it is not an erasure of Christianity itself, or of the clergy, or of our freedom to worship. The Lord has implications in each of those categories. If it were so, it would be explicitly violent and totalitarian. It is rather an understated cultural redirection in which Christianity is slowly erased from the realm of policy influence, or in more American parlance, the public square. There are many examples. Uh, we've seen certainly in the recent marriage debate that one of the implications of last year's plebiscite is many moves locally and nationally to curb the influence of Christianity in terms of public policy. No one is yet being stopped from driving or walking to church on a Sunday. But there are implications outside of the practice of worship for how we express a view in terms of policy. Proponents of exclusion zones around abortion providers in recent debates in Victoria and New South Wales were regularly depicted, uh, regularly depicted councillors, protesters and prayerful intercessors as religious extremists contrary to evidence. Exclusion zones legislation passed in each of those states uh, in, with support including the, from the uh, New South Wales Premier despite her referring to it explicitly as flawed legislation. The debate over religious freedom continues as we await recommendations made to the federal government in the as yet unreleased report by the Honourable Philip Ruddock, who chaired the inquiry that received over 16,000 submissions. I'll say that number again, 16,000 submissions. If religious freedom was not a seriously contested issue in Australia today, one would have expected a much lower number at least. But of course, we await news on that front with great interest. Erasure. When I help my children, who are still quite young, with their homework and a mistake is made, we sometimes erase out the pencil markings on the page. The official record thus tells the story we want to tell about that particular piece of homework. 
but it doesn't mean that what was written never happened. And we certainly retain the memory of what we have erased. Something similar is happening in relation to the policy voice of the church. I should say as well that I speak as a, as a Catholic, so when I think of the church, I do think primarily uh, of the church in that category, but I think more broadly, though, um, about expressions of the church across different traditions and denominations. In recent years, any number of Senate inquiries have called for submissions in which many in this room may have had a hand in helping to write from time to time. And institutions like my own, the Australian Catholic University, certainly will participate and make submissions where it's appropriate, as does the church. It is an important piece of work and one that we have to regard with seriousness. But increasingly, religious voices are overlooked or ignored with the idea that a faith-based perspective has no place in policy development in a liberal democracy, as if faith and reason are at odds and are in conflict. Uh, a well-known bioethicist who may or may not be here at the moment appeared on Q&A and as a reasonable voice against euthanasia was asked what their religious practice was. They were the only person on the panel asked that specific question. If you are for euthanasia on, on Q&A, you will be not, not be asked whether you are motivated by your religious conviction. It's a question that implies that you are being unreasonable, that you are motivated by an irrational faith. That's why the question's asked. It doesn't matter what you answer. The fact that you have been asked that undermines your argument in the public square. A lot of my work uh, is in church policy, which is, is a lovely, ambiguous turn of phrase, really. But it denotes those areas of policy concern with which uh, my institution, as a Catholic university, shares an interest with the broader church. I recently put the following list before some colleagues uh, as challenges facing the church at the moment and asked if they can identify other challenges before us faced by the church with which we might have some wisdom or help to offer. Within minutes, the room managed to double the list. So I, I say that as a way of pointing out that <clears throat> just when we think we've got a fair sense of what some of the big challenges are, there's a whole range more that we haven't thought through. That list included the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, uh, an upcoming Plenary Council in 2020, decline in regular mass attendance, loss of institutional trust and with it social capital, confusion over the role of the church in public policy, competing intuitions about our future direction, generational change in the episcopate and amongst church leaders, the losses of the 2017 marriage plebiscite, long-term losses in beginning of life matters and new threats for end-of-life care, little succession planning for lay leadership, uneven vocational numbers, the crises of marriage and family, magnified institutional life, example, in our schools, but a lesser quality of life in our parishes and other communities. So that was my list, but they managed to double it very quickly, and I won't share with you all of the other additions to it, 
Now, not, not all of those is necessarily a crisis. Some of them, I think, probably are. But certainly all of them are challenges that need to be considered and thought through. Two standout areas of policy concern, uh, and this is not a comprehensive list by any means, illustrate the way in which the church's voice is experiencing what I call that erasure, that attempt to remove the voice of the church in terms of public policy. The first follows the marriage plebiscite of last year, and the second is what we might call the confession issue. And this follows recommendations made in the final report by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And this has become a very live issue uh, amongst a number of states at the moment. In both of these, the mechanisms, the mechanisms for change in our liberal democracy have moved us into new territory in which previous assumptions have been overturned. We're in new territory in many ways. On the one hand, with the first, what was perceived to be a natural institution for which the law was responsible only for protection and some gradual change. And second, in the confessional issue, one in which a basic requisite of Catholic faith and practice has now been overturned in South Australia, the ACT and Tasmania. And counting on the basis of little in fact or evidence for the protection of children. Now I realise that's a contested issue, um, but I would maintain that we haven't seen evidence out of the Royal Commission or elsewhere that suggests that introducing mandatory reporting, uh, including in the confession, that's not just for Catholics, but it will certainly hurt Catholics probably more than anyone else, in what's called religious confession, um, will actually create a safer environment for children. In fact, an obvious argument is being made by the Australian bishops at the moment that imposing a rule of mandatory reporting upon the clergy and denying the seal of the confessional pretty much guarantees that nobody who conducts such evil, and it is evil, there is no question around that, will ever raise it in the confessional, if in fact they ever did. It will certainly not make children safer and in some instances might create more unsafe environments. Um, a byproduct of that, of course, is that all of us involved with teaching that the confessional uh, needs to be maintained and all of us who provide teaching, who share resources um, and who provide for and facilitate environments in which the seal of the confession is to be maintained is probably uh, involved in a criminal conspiracy. So that involves all bishops, all clergy, all catechists, most Catholic parents who still go through a uh, first rite of reconciliation program um, in their parishes and anyone who passes a catechism on to someone else and says, have a read. I want to turn now. That, so that's the crisis situation in which we're in. I want to turn to a phrase used by Pope Benedict XVI regarding the future of Christianity in contexts in which the churches and perhaps all religious voices are being hushed and in which many fellow citizens treat Christianity as a tribal term rather than a commitment of faith and life. For Joseph Ratzinger, the church must learn how to be a, quote, creative minority, end quote. And that's a term some of you might be well familiar with already. 
I contrast this with being an overlooked minority, which I think is increasingly the space we're in in Australia. The term is not Ratzinger's, but that of Arnold Toynbee, a British historian who popularised the term industrial revolution in the English language and who recognised the overturning of medieval forms of trade and production for what could now be called the production lines of modernity. For Toynbee, civilizations that are in decline and in danger of death have a means of recovery and renewal that are not based merely on the materiality of that civilization. In other words, if you want to save a civilization, you can't just strengthen the economy and hope for the best. Without being particularly religious in his analysis, Toynbee argued that civilizations have a spiritual reality, and it is through that that they are able to reverse decline, reform old corruptions, old decay, and old self-indulgence, and find a way towards civilizational renewal. He called the instrument of those means creative minorities. Ratzinger viewed Christianity which has been in decline in the West for many decades, as itself the vessel of hope for Western civilization. What is intriguing is that he viewed this not as a return to earlier structures or indeed towards being a means of influence in the way it was understood in previous generations, but as the cultivation of small communities who have no allusion to power or greatness. I repeat that. Cultivation of small communities who have no allusion to power or greatness. They will achieve more with less and have no interest in mere conformity on any given topic. Facing the sort of decline that we're considering in terms of Western civilization, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has argued that civilizations have four options. He writes, first, it can accommodate to secularization, the way of religious liberalism. Second, it can resist it, sometimes violently, as religiously extremist groups are doing in many parts of the world today. Third, it can withdraw into protected enclaves, much as we see happening in certain groups within Orthodox Judaism. This is a powerful strategy and it has strengthened Jewish Orthodoxy immensely, but at the price of segregation from and thus loss of influence on the world outside. Sachs draws inspiration from Benedict's application of Toynbee's principle but recognises it is no easy or comfortable path. He goes on, and I quote, The fourth possibility, to become a creative minority, is not easy, because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, 
a demanding and risk-laden choice, end quote. Sachs views the creative minority position as a realistic one, almost allergic to sentimentality about the past or the inertia of unreflective nostalgia. It takes the past and takes tradition very seriously, but as living and organic realities, not something to return to, but something to delve more deeply into. It is a hopeful realism that invests deeply within its own tradition and worldview, while at the same time seeking effective and even transformative engagement with what Sachs calls the larger society, which, as he says, you are a part, end quote. It is a demand and a risk because engagement makes you vulnerable. For example, in the marriage debate, in putting forward a position on marriage, Christian communities open themselves up to scrutiny. Unsurprisingly, all the hypocrisies and inadequacies of Christian approaches to marriage and relationships were laid bare over the last 12 months or so. How many Christian marriages are actually stable and happily welcome children? How many Catholics have divorced and remarried? How many clergy have shied from topics like domestic violence or the care and protection of children? None of these mean the arguments for marriage in and of themselves were wrong, but it illustrates the inconsistencies and failures of Christians at a time when they are making a policy case on an issue that is not just social, but personal and moral. And we have here a situation of, of, counterintu of counterintuition taking place. Um, in my, uh, in, in, in my um, time with my, my children, I often will, as most parents do, play them the, mu the music that I want them to listen to, not the music that they want to listen to. They're not young enough, they're not old enough yet to really have a serious fight with me. So they actually think that... I <laughs> so, yeah, it's not, it's not far away. Um, so I actually think that, that, that some, some early 80s hip-hop is actually okay. And now, now you, suddenly your respect for me has just dropped dramatically. But there is one that I was playing them recently, one song where the singer who's called No MC has a line where he says, because a girl is a girl and a boy is a boy. Three hours later outside of the car, my eight-year-old, as we're walking down the road somewhere, turned to me and he said, that was such a funny song, Dad. And I said, which one? What are we talking about? And he reminded me of that lyric. And he said, because, Dad, everybody knows a girl is a girl and a boy is a boy. Oh, so much ahead. Lots of wisdom. He's a much better theologian and philosopher than I am. The oft-quoted words of Benedict's successor... Pope Francis are of interest here. Francis says, and this has been, uh, this language has been taken up and used many times, but I think it's always good to go back to the source uh, when something is being requoted many times. Francis says, I see clearly that the thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness. Proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle, 
It is useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol and about the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. Heal the wounds, heal the wounds. And you have to start from the ground up. End quote. The nearness and proximity that Francis speaks of can best be understood when the church enacts authentic expressions of community. A Christian community will necessarily be outward focused and hospitable to others, whether that be the child, the unborn, the immigrant or the refugee. It defies the left-right dichotomy and finds it largely uninteresting in the way that Catholic social teaching is not a balm to any of the major political parties, but a constructive and supportive challenge. In this way, it wishes to foster healthy relationships with people that can withstand the encroachments of ideology. Now, outside of uh, North America and the United Kingdom, uh, and some parts of Europe, the term creative minority has not been taken up so extensively. There was something of an upsurge in publications regarding it um, in North America, not long after Ratzinger's election uh, or, or as, as, uh, as Bishop of Rome. It almost, um, almost to a person has not been taken up in any serious way in Australia. The point I suppose I'm trying to get us to in this in this presentation is is that I think the events of the last few decades but very particularly the last 12 months have taken us around the corner in terms of the relationship between church and society in Australia we are in a new situation we've been moving in that direction and many of us have been living there on the edge of it for many years already but there's no way out of it now. The marriage plebiscite's interesting, not just because of the marriage issue itself, but as an example of public policy in which a position of the church has been rejected by the population at large. Now, we've had all sorts of positions rejected in policy in Australia for many years, but it's always happened through other instruments of policy change. It's happened in Houses of Parliament. It's happened through local councils. It's happened through government intervention. This is the first time that the wider population itself voted directly on an issue of which the church had a very explicit and clear position, notwithstanding some very small Christian and religious groups with a, a different position. We're in a new situation. And when we're looking around for ways to enact that imagination that, that Carl was talking about before, I think that creative minority is one helpful way to understand how the church is to do its work, form its communities, and engage at the public policy level. Because I don't believe, contrary to some views, that we can retreat in terms of public policy there is something distinctive and good about a Christian contribution to be made on a whole range of life and death issues we're facing. Nevertheless, there is 
a recognition of the need for new modes of religious communities to affect some of those changes that we've been alluding to. Stanley Halvas has spoken of Christians as resident aliens in the West. He says, The Christian claim is not that we as individuals should be based in a community because life is better lived rather than alone, lived together rather than alone. The Christian claim is that life is better lived in the church because the church, according to our story, just happens to be true. Now that, to me, picks up a little of C.S. Lewis, who says that um, the difference between the Christian myth and all other myths is that the Christian myth happens to be a true myth. (laughs) Now, everybody, all of us, are free to accept or reject that. Critics of the church will not regard that view as a convincing basis for community. Nevertheless, a basic civility would require us to respect those who are motivated to form their community on the basis of what they believe to be true. In fact, if it were otherwise, why would we regard them with respect rather than outrage, incredulity or comical misapprehension? Why would we expect anyone to form a community on something other than what they believe to be true? Halvas rejects the heroic individualism so prevalent in a post-Kantian modernity in which we live and possibly are seeing the last dying embers of and insists that we are mutually vulnerable to one another. None of us able to persevere without authentic communities to sustain us. And in the face of a culture that rejects fundamental aspects of what might be regarded as necessary to freedom and dignity, such communities might be stronger when small and more effective when open to radical new modes of life. There's all sorts of examples from Christian history for this. Um, The one that stands out for me is the time of the the, the Counter-Reformation. Uh, a time in which Europe itself, as a concept, as a cohesive identity, seemed to have broken apart with the Reformation. And with that inherent cultural uh, and geographical split that had happened, and that ecclesial divide that happened within the church, it took a generation, but then there are those, um, including groups like Uh, the Jesuits and others, who saw a need for a particular new type of community to be developed and to respond to the challenge. And some of them were so inspired in the kind of community that they developed and the mission to which they were called that they took that mission to the other side of the world. There was no fear that held them back. But it did take at least a generation before some of those um, inspiring figures were raised up. We must keep in mind that Benedict himself largely thought of Europe when he used Toynbee's language of creative minorities. And I want to quote Benedict here. He says, We do not know what the future of Europe will be. Here we must agree with Toynbee that the fate of a society always depends on its creative minorities. Christian believers should look upon themselves as just such a creative minority helping Europe 
to reclaim what is best in its heritage and thereby to place itself at the service of all humankind. And I end that quote. By the end of his pontificate, and clearly, I think, in the midst of his successors, the pressing need for religious communities to be creative, to exercise their policy voice faithfully and clearly, and to build relationships of friendship across the old political spectrum, even when we're not beholden to the left-right spectrum, is as pressing as in any other dying civilization. Australia, I think, is no exception. We can imagine Lenin's vision easily, because in some ways it is coming to pass already. An answer and a response is to be a creative minority, always reaching further and effecting greater change than what any of our interlocutors expect. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Nigel Zimmerman with Not Yet Erased, Christianity as an Overlooked Minority. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 colloquium on the theme A World Without Christianity, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.